Hey guys, welcome to episode number 48 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach, and over approximately the next hour, you're going to hear the conversation that I had with Ryan Banter, who is a teacher and coach specializing in track and field at Parkway Central High School in Chesterfield, Missouri. Ryan is also a regular author and contributor at very prominent uh, speed development sites like Elite Track, Speed Endurance, and Just Fly. Ryan is the editor of the Sprinter's Compendium, which is a book, a very hefty book, nearly 1,800 pages, over 12 chapters, uh, the complete breakdown of speed development for athletes, both track and field and non-track and field athletes. It's for that reason that I wanted to sit down and talk to Ryan to get the background information on the book and really dig down into the important topics that came up for him during the research and collation of this massive book. Just as a side note, Ryan has asked me to share with you guys that if you buy the book from Amazon or Vivante before this year's Black Friday, he's going to throw in some free uh, bonus offers along with that. There's there's no affiliate links, there's no commissions for me in this. This is just me sharing uh, what I think is a very good book and I recommend if you work with athletes who have to specialize in speed, which is basically track and field and every field-based sport, you should definitely look at picking up this book. So, in this conversation, we talked all about Ryan's motivation, why he wanted to go through the absolute labor of love of putting together an 1,800-page book, trying to get the input of, of 50 expert coaches from all around the world, some of which who are very, very, very busy working with Olympians, world championship-level athletes, and so on. We looked at what the unifying themes were, uh, different guys working in different situations all over the world, but what were the common themes that united all of them? Uh, I'm a real big believer in the phrase that success leaves clues, and it's for that reason that I wanted to talk about this with Ryan. However, we also talked on the flip side about what the biggest differences were between the contributors of the book and what the underlying factors were for these differences, so that we as coaches can be better prepared to adapt our approach based on the circumstances that we find ourselves in. I was also curious about what Ryan has changed his mind about over the five-year course of putting this book together. I know I changed my mind like I changed my underwear. Uh, you know, every every few months or so, I'm trying something different. And with a project that takes five years, I'm sure there's stuff that changed. So you can hear all about what Ryan changed his mind about. Lastly, we finished up with a discussion on the practicalities of his work at Parkway Central, how he builds autonomy into a program where athletes maybe don't have the level of experience, but still want to have some ownership of their program, how he builds in individualization when he's short on time, large numbers of kids, maybe not the, the largest amount of resources. And lastly, how he's trying to push ahead with his program uh, through enhanced understanding of sports psychology and how he communicates with his athletes. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to check out more information like it, be sure to check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive members website that I've created just for coaches, and it offers a unique combination of video lectures, online discussion, and career advice that's going to help you to take your coaching career to the next level. Each month, we offer a 60-minute video lecture from a strength and conditioning coach working at the elite or professional level of sport on a topic that is dear to their heart. This is not just the stuff that you get taught that matters when you do your accreditation, your UKSCA or your degree. This is the stuff that keeps elite level coaches up at night that really matters in their job in the real world. We've got presentations from guys that work in the NFL, professional soccer, elite level track and field, uh, the NRL in Australia and New Zealand, international rugby, professional cycling, the list goes on. We have over 30 hours of video lectures and the list is growing all the time and you will get access to all of these when you sign up to become a member of the Rugby Strength Coach community.
Not only this, but you're going to get access to the online discussion forum. We have hundreds of members from all over the world working at the very, very top of the game all the way down to novice coaches. Here, you're going to be able to discuss every strength and conditioning topic under the sun, to ask questions and get answers, and share resources. Lastly, we also offer a special area of the forum dedicated to career development. Here, you're going to be able to get advice from coaches who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt, and worked at the highest level of the industry. Here, you're going to get advice on all the things you need to do to build the career that you want, including networking, CV writing, interview prep, and climbing the ladder. So if that sounds good to you and you'd like to try it out, just go to rugbystrengthcoach.com members and enter the code word trial. This is going to allow you to sign up for 24 hours at the price of just one pound. If you like it, keep it and you can sign up to become a regular member. If you don't, just get in contact with us, cancel it. There's no strings attached. If you don't like it and it's not for you, no problem. But for now, sit back and enjoy the podcast. Ryan, how's it going? Good, man. Thank you for having me on here. It's a pleasure. I'm excited to join you. Mate, my pleasure to have you on. Um, full full disclaimer, I'm, uh, I've not read all the way through the book, but I've, um, <laughs> I've read a lot of chapters. It's a big book. I've read um, several chapters, had a look through the rest, and um, you know, so far what I've seen has been absolutely excellent. So well done on that. Well, thank you. You know, it's a it's a humbling experience to finally bring that to a close and to see the, you know, the come for, to fruition and the five-year project that it was and, you know, the monster that it is of 763 some odd pages with a no spacing and a 10-point font. It, it is a dense read and I don't, it's kind of funny, one of the biggest reports I've gotten from most people commonly is they just can't believe how massive it is. You know, it's like until you see that thing and plop it down, five pounds of it on a on a table or a desk or a couch you know it is it is a it is a monster in some ways i feel like that might be intimidating but i, I hope it's uh exciting of the possibilities and different avenues that people can take from the 50 plus masters that are part of that process and i think I, I commented to you on facebook once that i was expecting uh, detox by dr dre to be released before the uh, the sprinters compendium so uh, my apologies <laughs> you you won that one <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, with with some of the things that I have in terms of uh, my uh, disabilities with writing and everything, it was more of a bucket list item than anything else. And so I wanted to uh, make sure that if I did it, that I did it right. And, you know, talking to a few people like Steve Magnus, you know, um, he uh, the advice he gave me when we were talking about his first book, which was The Science of, of Running you know, he felt like putting an artificial timeline out there was to his detriment, yeah. you know, and if he would have had to have done it again, he would take time and to make sure that when he felt it was ready to go was when the timeline should be set. And, uh, you know, in 2016, the fall of, I was pretty much done with my writing, but then because of my uh, <laughs> learning disabilities, when it comes to dysgraphia and things like that, I knew that uh, there would need to be some, some massive editing and, um, you know, to allow that time to happen was good. And I think that most people will find the product to be, you know, comprehensive, uh, to, to say the least. Extremely. And my, yeah. And my help, my hope is, is that, you know, again, whenever you talk about it being a compendium, it needs to have everything, you know? And so I tried to, you know, put everything in there that uh, I felt was relevant to making people fast. What was the, the driving motivation to, to produce that book? What, what was missing out there that you, you thought you, you should fill? Well, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a longer story, but I'll try to make it uh, as short as possible. I, um, 
got opportunity to write on EliteTrack.com, and that introduced me to a very outspoken individual in the strength and conditioning world, Carl Valley. And oh Carl yeah. And I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, his his reputation precedes him, but uh, you know, the passion that he had and I had were were pretty pretty evenly matched and he's such a great writer and he's he's such an intelligent guy and an opinionated guy too which i like you know i don't want somebody to tell me everything's great and wonderful all the time you know and one of the things that he and i came to a conclusion of is there's just not a book that kind of was comprehensive and and covered you know the everybody's got a book on here's how you set up the blocks here's how you three step to a hurdle here's how you you know you do the squat and i'm like but there's nothing in there that does covers everything it's almost this this myth especially in the united states that well if you're fast you're fast and that's it you know we just have really great athletes and we'll shoot them down a funnel and whoever comes out the other end in in one piece or close to as one one piece as they can get then they're really great and then we can claim that we were responsible for their greatness when in reality we didn't do anything to really make them better and in the world of strength and conditioning there's tons of books on you know plyometrics and pilates and and distance running but there wasn't a book a book that was comprehensive on sprinting so i wanted to make the and jack daniels is a distance guru and his his daniels running formula is one of the most purchased books in the world of track and field for good reason and i not to say that I could ever make a book like he made and have that kind of influence, but I wanted to make the best attempt that's ever been done at doing a book like that for sprinting. And, uh, when I went to the Olympic training center in 2012, you know, I was there just as one of the coaches at this kind of coaches school and we're all sitting around the cafeteria and talking and coaches start mentioning articles and they mentioned an article that I wrote and they didn't even realize that they were sitting across the table from, from the guy greatness. who wrote the article. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I mean, something, maybe notorious. But, uh, you know, I uh, I was like, wow, you know, and I kind of came to this conclusion and it was scary. Like, one, it's like, oh my God, people are reading this stuff. Like, I need to do a better job of making sure it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And two, you know, I need to make sure that not only does it make sense, but that it's reasonable so that we don't have people getting hurt. And number three, I was excited because I was like, wow, maybe there is something to this. Maybe I could take upon this project and there might actually be interest. I didn't know anybody was reading anything that I put on uh, Elite Track or found value in it. And so that was, you know, uh, a little over five years ago. And that's kind of where I went about this process of, of doing it. And it was the inspiration of, hey, let's make a comprehensive, a compendium about sprinting because there never really has been one. And the cool thing is, as you know, in the track and field world, people are much more willing to share their ideas and and values and training um, to individuals who seek them out. Um, They're not resistant or hesitant to share that. And I think that's one of the really great things about the world of track and field. So a number of people really bought into the idea of what I was trying to accomplish and and really helped me uh, by contributing to a really special project. And, And I'm very proud of it. How did you how did you approach that project? Because you know a book so large, was it that you looked at different, you know, you you wrote up a chapter list and then you sought out experts to to contribute to those, or you literally sat down interview format with the, the over fifty contributors and then you kind of organized their information into the different chapters. Well, you know, it's funny. I actually the the first thing that I did is I I said, okay, how do I want if I'm reading a book on sprinting. 
what do I want? How do I want it to be formatted? And so what I did is I tried to set it up as if you were going through practice. So chapter one is warm-ups, chapter two is biomechanics, chapter three is acceleration, chapter four is maximum velocity, chapter five is speed endurance, because, you know, obviously as you run, you go through that process. And the book goes all the way through that until you get to basically weight room and cool down parts of practice. And then it moves to the outside of training. Gimmicks and that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. You know, the periodization, the management, uh, injury, prevention, prehab, rehab, that type of stuff. And so then I'm like, okay, so now I've got an idea of where I want these chapters to go. Um, Now what I need to do is figure out how do I want to present each one of those chapters. And so I decided I'm going to go with my stories and my anecdotes first about the things that I learned and the things that I screwed up to kind of give the reader an understanding of, you know, here are the things of a coach who started from the bottom uh, of the world of speed and mistakes that I've made and the lessons that I've learned. And then the second part was, okay, are these lessons valid? Well, yes, here's what science says or research says about the topic of speed. And then the third part of each chapter was, okay, now that you know my stories and my screw ups and what science says to fix that, now here is what you can do within a practice to enhance or to minimize those things that you're trying to work on or fix. And then the fourth part was, of course, the juicy part that everybody really likes, which is all these you know, stars of, of the coaching world and their opinions on the topic. So you have my opinion, but then you have these other various scholars in the sport that have their differing opinions and their different ideas, which is really kind of a neat compare and contrast. And I, and I think that's probably obviously the biggest value uh, of the book. And uh, it was kind of funny. So after I kind of knew how I wanted it to be formatted, then I'm like, all right, who can I trick into helping me? <laughs> you know what I'm going to – and not, I mean, not, not in a nefarious way or anything like that. But once I get – you know, once you get a couple coaches. So once, you know, Dan Path agreed to help me out and what a flipping wonderful guy he is. I mean he is just the greatest guy the greatest coach his reputation precedes him in such a good way but it is it is who he is he's just amazing and he's even he's even cooler and I know, I know it sounds silly but he's even more fun and more entertaining and you know and even a greater guy in person I don't know how to explain it cuz he's already heard, a really good dude he <laughs> yeah he's just he's awesome and um what a, what a what a great dude so anyway so once i got him you know, then a bunch of other people are like, okay, if Dan's going to do this, yeah. that brought legitimacy to the project. And then a lot of other people really agreed to help out. And like I said, it wasn't a, a big push because most of the people in the track world are more than willing to help you. Because if you hold on to that knowledge and you're the only one who has it, it's only going to help the handful of kids that you work with. And if you really believe in the whole essence of the Olympic movement and, and sport and uh, you know, driving for human perfection, then you got to be a person who believes in sharing this type of stuff because there's going to be an athlete out there or somebody else who could really benefit from that knowledge, and you can kind of sit back and know, hey, you know, I once talked to that coach, and I helped him out, and now look at his athletes and look what they're doing, and you can you can feel somewhat responsible for that, and I think that's really rewarding. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, and there were some coaches that chose not to help me out, and you know, as you look through the list. Uh, you can kind of figure out who those people are and, and it's okay. That's their prerogative. 
Um, and maybe now that they see that the project was a legit one and I wasn't pulling a fast one on everybody and I actually finished the book that maybe when we do a, a volume two or, you know, the second edition, which won't take five years, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know, maybe they'll be more res- willing to help out. You know, that's the way, you know, to me, the weird thing about knowledge is just because the knowledge is out there doesn't mean that they're going to be able to perform on your level. Like I, I can walk into a, a restaurant kitchen right now and watch the chef put all the food together, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to be able to produce the same quality of meal for someone. So I think that's what Absolutely. people, they miss a lot of the time. Yeah. One of my buddies, he, he always talks about how he's not smart and then he always drops these pearls of wisdom. That's one of his favorite things to say. That exact example that you just presented, he said, you know, it's not the recipe, it's the cook. Yeah. It's the cook. It's, it's a big cook part of it for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, with even the most simple things, it's just that that understanding and that knowledge and that very almost uh, scapel-like perfection, where they know when to do what they what they're supposed to do. And so, yeah, the cook is really more important than the recipe. But if you're going to practice, if you're going to improve, recipes do help. Oh hell yeah, yeah. Um, you, you've mentioned uh, a lot of contributors from from different parts of the world, different backgrounds. Yeah. One of the things that I always look to as a coach is if you've identified individuals who have arrived at the same conclusion as you or as, as one another without actually having contact with one another. So you know they're not influencing each other, but they've they've arrived to the same conclusion. And to me, that's really striking because it means, hey, you know, maybe we're on the right track here. If you think about all of the people that you spoke to in the in the book, what are the, the, the big overarching themes that unite all of those people? Well, I would think you know, and this is going to be one of those answers that you might hear, but a lot of coaches will give you the answer. It depends. Yeah. And when you hear that, they've come to a epitome of knowledge where it's, Hey, this is all dependent upon the athlete, the situation, the environment, the training age, the goals, the event. And those coaches come to that and every coach kind of goes through those stages like a you know nothing (laughs) and you're desperate to know something and then you know a little bit but you think you know it all and you really still don't know anything and then you realize oh wow i absolutely don't know anything and now i have more (laughs) questions than i have answers and then you come to this sort of sense of zen where it's okay that you don't have all the answers and that you enjoy the mystery of figuring out a few simple truths. And so I think that big truth is it all depends. As coaches, a system should be a system for the athlete that you're specifically working with. And so that involves evaluation, that involves mentoring, that involves debriefing, that involves very good goal setting, And what's interesting, as things improve, as things move along, that athlete will need different things. The depends changes. And I think that that's one of the things that I found really interesting that the really great coaches figured out. You know, so for this athlete, you know, I'm going to train him this way for this period of time. And then once this training effect takes place, we may still continue to do that because that's what the kid benefits the most from. Or... We're going to do something completely different now because we've established this new you and now we've got this new thing that we need to go chase down and attack and we're going to figure it out together. Um, It's kind of interesting because like in the history of like 
you know, uh, aeronautics, right, in flight, there were three countries that were working on, or four countries that were working on jet engine technology at the same time, completely separate to each other. Not there was evidence to show that there was nobody stealing and there wasn't any intelligence where these guys were going in and, and taking blueprints and stuff like that. They literally were able to come to the same conclusions technologically at the same time. So in the coaching world, I think that you've hit upon a really interesting thing, which is that it all depends idea and where the coaches become more um, democratic in the way that they coach and they become more like prescriptive in nature more of a of a doctor figuring out what the what ails the athlete or what helps the athlete and goes after that individually so were there any areas where you know there there was major disagreement between uh between some of the contributors you know that they they oh. fell into one school of thought on some stuff and other guys fell into another school of thought absolutely i mean a ton. And I think that's the value of the book. Right. And, and so some of that's our, our biases, you know, or a bias, you know, as as coaches, like what we what we've seen, what our experience has taught us. Right. And so that kind of goes against the idea of, of being athlete centered. But I think that there's a lot of wiggle room within that. So it still fits. So I think one of the things that was the biggest the biggest difference was volume. You know, how much training are we actually doing? Yeah. You know, if you've got Chris Corfist and Tony Holler, one of the funniest things that Chris Corfist wrote in the book is when I asked him, are you long to short? Are you a Matviev? Are you a Cheney periodization model? And, and, and uh, Corfist said, I'm short to short. Yeah. Three reps, <laughs> means, three reps per yeah. session. Yeah. I mean, you're talking super high intensity, you know, so you have to, you have to demand a lot from those, those athletes, you know. And um, but not a lot of not a lot of volume. And then you have people who don't believe in, you know, the tempo work like at all at in 85 percent to 80 you know percent ranges. They feel like there's no value in that. You know, like Charlie Francis talked about either you're going fast or you're going slow, you know, so you have 70 percent for tempo efforts or you're going near maximum efforts. You know, so we're trying to develop speed. Meanwhile, you know, you have people that were more Clyde Hart ish, if you will in their training theory where you're doing large volumes of, of individual interval runs followed by relatively large volumes of tempo running. And so what I think you get into with that, and I think where people like to align themselves, you know, again, going back to that coach who thinks they know a lot, but doesn't yet know what they don't know is that that is a trap. It isn't these different, like, this guy's right or this guy's right or this guy's right. It's more of it's right for this individual, for this particular event, because this is the specificity of what you're trying to train for their particular, you know, genetics, mm. training history, and environment. You know, if, if you uh, want a 400-meter runner to be successful and you're going out and running – you know, three flying tens and think that that's going to take care of probably not meter. sufficient. <laughs> it's not sufficient. But if you want them to be a great long jumper, four by one, 100 meter guy, you know, 60 meter indoor guy, without a doubt, that's probably the training you need to be touching upon and yeah. rather frequently, you know. And so it really comes down to the specificity and the needs of that particular event and then the, the needs of that particular athlete. So that's where I saw the biggest stuff was just in volume of training, which I think is cool because I like to see that comparing and contrasting. 
You, well, you, you kind of adding in from the uh, the field sport world, I was talking to uh, a good friend of mine, Graham Morris, who's you know been, okay. been on the podcast, done some presentations for for the community. We we actually went on holiday to Thailand uh, a few right. weeks ago, and we were talking about you know kind of similar to this. And one of the things that he's noticed in his work is is the more kind of fast twitch Ferrari athlete they are, the more they fit that Charlie Francis model of they they really like the intense stuff and they don't like that dead zone in the middle. But he said, you know, right. guys that are, you know operate a bit more like a diesel engine, it's actually the middle stuff that they they seem to respond best to that work. Absolutely. Well, and, and that goes back to you know, and if getting outside of the sprint world going into the distance world where Steve Magnus talks about that in the, in the science of, of, of running where he talks about fiber type training yeah. and there's something to be said for that. Now, obviously some of us and many of us in high school can't go and say, Hey, let's go get a, you know, pull some muscle out and take a look at it under a microscope and see what you got. Uh, that first of all, kids would probably run away from you and never come back. Yeah. And you could really figure <laughs> out how fast they are. But, um, you know, by th- observation and through testing, you can kind of figure out where those kids are at, you know, if they're hamstring centric or quadricep centric, or they seem to be, you know, totally neural, or they seem to be more what I like to say, uh, you know, hydraulic in nature or whatever. And you can kind of figure out, you know, what kind of gives them the go-go. And um, like you said, I agree. In fact, I have a young lady in my program where going through this book, what I discovered is I had been training this girl completely wrong in the winter due to the, you know, snow and cold weather we had we did not do a lot of speed endurance training or tempo training because it was impossible to do so you know we have some hallways and we've got you know some places that we can do acceleration and weight training and plyometrics and so we did a lot of that with her and she came out and ran massive prs in the first meet of the year and then throughout the rest of the season she struggled to hit those times again and those times weren't even wind dated and sure enough, it, you know, me being the, the big dumb idiot that I am, it took me about a, you know, you know, three to four week period to figure out, oh, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> this is one of those kids I need to train like Corfus and Holler train their kids because she is a neural, you know, a neural ninja. You know, that's what she needs. And um, she doesn't need more of this, you know, middle of the road, like you said, diesel engine type of training. And sure enough, in a very short period of time. Um, implementing some of that training again of the flying tens and the twenties and acceleration and stuff like that and getting away from uh, all special endurance and tempo and, and still speed endurance is in there, but it, the volumes were much lower. Um, all of a sudden she came right back and looked like a million bucks again. And uh, it'll be really interesting now that I've got her coming to train with me here in two weeks and we're going to take the long push all the way to May. You know, I'm going to do some stuff that I haven't ever done before based off of what I learned from the sprinters compendium and the contributors that helped me. And I, and I have a sneaking suspicion she's going to really blow people's doors off this year by implementing some of that training. Cause we saw such a huge response when we went back to it. Um, and so that was pretty interesting. So uh, over the course of, you know, you said this is a five year process writing the book. Now I personally, mm-hmm. you know, I changed my opinion, like I changed my underwear and I can look <laughs> back every, every six months, every year, every two years, three years, and I look right, at what I was doing, right. and I think, no, I do that differently, or I've changed my mind about that. Were there any major aspects of your work that you've, you've had your mind changed either by time or by speaking to these contributors, and, and what are they? Well, you know, again, um, leaning more towards really trying to improve maximal speed 
is something that needs to be done even with a high school athlete and even when conditions outside are not great you need to figure out ways to get that done number one number two and i kind of had this confirmed already but not all athletes need to hit the gym like crazy you know um some athletes can really benefit more from plyometrics than getting into the weight room i mean if you see you know some of the british sprinters and i don't want to name anybody by name because they're going to get mad at me harry a.a yeah yeah i mean some of those guys yeah you said it so some of those guys look like superheroes but i you know personally and christophe lemetra outruns them yeah and you know and christophe lemetra that looks like he just jumped away from a computer and yeah you know and and everything he you know, he's pretty darn fast because he's wiry and he's elastic and he's neural. And, and, um, you know, so every athlete needs something a little bit different, but, you know, again, even if you look at, uh, Oh gosh, the hurdler from America, David Oliver, you know, when he kind of went away from the weights, it's like the guy's already built like a Greek God. And when they went away from the weights for him, he started running faster again. You know, he Mm kind of had a little bit of a Renaissance of his career. And so there's something to be said for that. Um, you know, the other thing, some of the stuff was, you know, reassuring and confirmed some of my beliefs and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and that was good too. You know, the fact that, you know, you need to have some sense of things, you need to have a plan of where you want to go with your athletes and you want to have some sort of structure to the daily training, but that might be the ancillary stuff. So like your drills and your warm up and your cool down and your core work, that stuff can be pretty like set. But then the meat and potatoes of what you do in practice, you cannot be wedded to that to your detriment. So if you've got something that's planned and it's something that you really want to get done, but it may not happen that day, you know, so you have to shut that workout down. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, and and a lot of coaches really gave some some good advice on that. So like, let's say the kid has a really bad individual rep. Well, that might be a one off. But if you catch two or three reps in a row it's time to shut that workout down, you know? And I feel like that was one of those things that a lot of coaches are afraid to do because they're like, oh my God, it's like 89 degrees out. You know, there's no humidity. This perfect to go run these, you know, flying thirties. Oh my God, this kid is not hitting the times, you know, but I'm going to force this workout through. Well, if the workout is maximum velocity, then you're doing that kid a disservice. It's better to shut that workout down and not to be afraid of that. So that was a, was another thing that a lot of coaches were very open about. And, and that kind of bleeds into one more idea, which is you have a plan, but periodization, again, is not really something that once you get to a master coaching level that people are stuck into. You have the, the periodization is a scaffolding, you know, that you kind of want to fit within, but then what you do day to day needs to be very, very flexible not rigid. And so those are some of the things that I kind of felt a lot of those coaches were bringing to the table. And then other things, tricking athletes into doing stuff. How do you get them to run a 350 if they're a 400 meter runner and they just won't run a good 350? How do you get a, how do you get a kid to go out there and blast really hard through a special endurance workout without giving them a distance, you know, like Mike Hurst talked about over timing, you know, so instead of over distancing over time them. So they cover the distance in this, you know, in 45 seconds in a 400 meters. Okay. Well, let's go 50 seconds, 
you know, and see how far we can cover in a practice, you know, and I think that those type of tricks and the, the sports psychology stuff was the most valuable and interesting. Just going back to the one of the things you mentioned about increasing max velocity indoors. I'm, I'm curious yeah. as to how you approach that. Is it like you have to save up and buy a woodway curve or is there, there other stuff you're doing? Well, um, you know, for us, I have a pretty unique situation in my high school. We have like a, a 300 meter hallway. Okay. So there's a lot of length to, to getting stuff done. Wow. Um, we have tile. I mean, the kids don't run in spikes, so obviously yeah. it's not, you know, true, true maximum velocity. And that, and that can kind of get boring, so you have to be very careful. So some of the stuff we do, like Gary Winkler had a great idea, and this is more acceleration than it is is uh, um, absolute speed, but they have, like, uh, reaction games. So you do all sorts of different stuff when it reacting to different types of stimulus, reacting in different positions. So push-ups on your back, you know, uh, walking in and reacting to a cone, um, dancing and then clapping and sprinting out. And so there's all these kind of things that you can do to make it fun and keep it interesting. So when you're inside for a long period of time, you still get something that arouses that athlete that gets them excited about what they're doing. And the other thing is if I don't have – um, if I have to be inside on the tile for more than, than one day, that second day I'll go into the, our cardio room and I'll have them stand up on the bike, you know, and push those pedals as fast as they can from the longest distance that they can to simulate kind of that full extension length of the leg. And then when I want to do acceleration work, I bunch them up on the bike and drop, you know, increase the load, the tension on the bike. And we push out as hard as we possibly can and accelerate off the bike like that. And um, you can be very inventive and still get a lot of stuff done and in turn not break your kids' legs in the process. So yeah. that's a lot of the stuff that we do. And to add stimulus, if you feel like the kids are flat, you know, you videotape them. Um, you could still use a free lap timing system inside, you know, and you just got to make sure you clear the hallways and don't kill any Spanish teachers in the process. <laughs> So those things and kids are cool with that. And then, you know, the other thing is, is I, I tell people this all the time. Don't be afraid, especially early in a conditioning cycle, that even if it is cold, as long as it's not icy or snowy on the track, you can still go out and do a lot of that stuff. You're not going to get the absolute times that you want, but their effort level will be similar even though their times aren't there yet. They're still giving you a 95% effort, even if they got tights and a sweatshirt on and, and all that kind of stuff. They're still giving you that effort. They're just not in shape enough to give you the velocity in which um, you know you could get them potentially hurt. And then hopefully as the season progresses, the weather gets better and, and the times get better too. And then you could be a little bit more aggressive, but the athlete hadn't spent six months away from that type of speed. So it's not something so new to the body that, once they see it, now they're screwed up for a week and a half because they're doing something they haven't seen in such a long time. So you They've just, seen you it, just it, did, it, invented uh, weather periodization. Oh, without a doubt. So I was talking to this guy at this university, and, and he shall not be named, but he was all confused as to, well, how did this get done? How is this possible? How do you run as fast as you possibly can in the winter? It's cold outside. And I said, well, you just bundle up. Well, you got all these clothes on. You know, how is that? I don't understand. Well, they're still giving you that same effort level. They're still giving you a 95% to 100% effort level for their 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 time at that moment, you know, their effort at that moment. And that's one of the things that Vince Anderson touched on a lot. He's like, he wants to go, Vince Anderson, the coach at Texas A&M, the sprint coach there, he wants to go fast all the time. 
you know, because if you're waiting to go fast at the end, you don't have enough warm months or warm weeks for the athlete to see that. And so, you know, that way they, they've been able to, to get to where they need to go. And again, I kind of look at it as, you know, a lot of people like to run with 20 pound weight vests or do sled drives and, and, you know, that close could be your first step into added load, yeah. you know, and then a- after they kind of adjust to that and adapt to that, then you can go to uh, a weighted vest or a sled pool or something like that, you know, depending again on your environment and your weather. How do you build autonomy into what you do? Because obviously f- from a cultural standpoint, you're, you're trying to create intelligent athletes who are involved in the training process and, and can, can make decisions for themselves. How do you balance that versus giving them what you think they need whilst also giving them you know, the opportunity to make decisions for themselves, do what they want to do? How do, how do you build that into what you do with, with large groups of, of high school age athletes? Well, with freshmen, it's herding cats. Yeah. And uh, so you don't, you, you don't get a lot of autonomy from them, and, and you shouldn't expect it. It's, that's too much. Um, you know, we have a group of athletes that help us coach those kids. So we, we pair our kids up, big sister, little sister. And because um, I coach mostly high school girls, we would do that with guys too if I, I had guys. And when I coached American football, um, we did do that with the, with the guys with drills and, and, the, and stuff that we did in the weight room. And so then those kids are responsible for stretching the kids out, doing the drills with them, showing them, you know, how to do the, the weight room. So that same big sister is a partner with them on a particular rack in the weight room. And so they have that person. So it's not the coach like lording over them. This is like a friend, you know, or a person who will become a friend and a younger athlete that can kind of help and then so now you have all and then those athletes who are big sisters feel more of a responsibility to do what they're supposed to be doing and taking a leadership role and even though not everybody's meant to be a captain and sometimes you don't have captains but that kid might be a great leader for that one or two or three girls that she's a big sister for yeah and so then that kind of builds that and then they see that vicariously which helps out a lot the other thing that we talk about is that I kind of stair step responsibility. So we have freshmen who they're just there and they train and their volumes that we train them at and the amount of work they do in the weight room is always less because we just want to have them be comfortable and compete and enjoy the sport. And then as we move forward, we if it's prudent to do so, we add more volume and responsibilities and training to them. And so then we have another group called a winner's committee. So they're not captains, but they're the underclassmen, sophomores and juniors who kind of help design the parties and the events and the team themes. And then we have captains that are pretty much without fail, always juniors and seniors. And then they have more of a responsibility of leading the kit, the team through drills and through stretches, especially in competition. Um, and I have a coach who kind of, they go see to, so what they have to do for their warm up and their cool down. And so you have a couple people who have eyes on them at all times at a meet. So it's not just me by myself. It's all the other coaches. And so that sends a good signal too, that, Hey, everybody's expecting you to do this. This is the expectation. You know, um, when they go into the weight room, you know, we have, everybody's got a list of different workouts. And I think what really helps too is when you do have some individualization to those things. So those athletes know that you're trying to do what's best 
for their particular archetype of, of athleticism. And I think that helps buy in. And every day we have a team huddle where we talk about, um, you know, the, the leadership or the expectations and we have a quote of the day. And then one of the things that we've done with great success in cross country, um, and we're going to implement it this year in track because we've done it two years in a row in cross country is we have skull sessions and we do it once a week where it's about team building or leadership or great stories about previous athletes that we've had or how you can benefit from getting better sleep or, and we call it sleep hygiene, which I know the Exos guys and Athletogen guys talk about that a lot, and Dan Path does too. And then we talk about, you know, good injury prevention, and we talk about why we're doing what we're doing in training. And so those type of things, and we don't beat them over the head with it, it's once a week, you know, and so it's concentrated enough that it has an impact. And then because it's something different every day, it's refreshing for them too, that they, they can get something out of that. And they just see the progress. You know, you build a narrative with your athletes with all the stories of people who've come before them and they can see the progress and they can see the times, which is really important to catalog, right? And to have those type of things so that, you know, when you talk about this athlete and go, look, this is what the athlete used to do. And now you can see once they decided to be serious about their sleep, now look at how much better they got. And so those type of stories of people that they can relate to that live in the same neighborhood as them and went to the same school and sit in the same desk really increases buy-in. And uh, that narrative is very important and that story is very important. So those are a lot of, I know it's a lot, but uh, those are the types of things that we do to try to create that buy-in and, and you know, um, intrinsic motivation for those kids. So I'm just furiously writing notes down. <laughs> um <laughs> What are the other areas that you're you're pushing ahead and you're learning and you're trying to develop on right now? 16 so, years into the game. So 15 years into the game, the thing that surprises you again is this this idea of knowledge. I you know, you feel like, "Oh man, I've got this all figured out and I know the world." And then as you keep doing that, this universe just keeps getting more and more vast. And so the biggest thing that I've tried to work on for myself as a coach is how I talk to my athletes, how I communicate with them in the, in the sports psychology aspect of that. How do you frame a conversation when you have that conversation? What do you say? And communicating in a way that makes sense to those kids and they feel like, you know, and you are, you're investing in their well-being individually. And that's, that's the biggest thing is, is continuing to work on solidifying those relationships, but also improving their ability to get into that flow state and figuring out psychologically what you can or shouldn't say to them and when you communicate with them to prepare them as a coach to help stair-step them through that, that grit. You know, that's a real big buzzword, right? But developing that grit you know, having a good mindset about being tough and how we get to being tough. It's not magic. You know, being tough is going through really difficult things that are uncomfortable and not fun, you know. And then as we proceed through those things, if they're designed in the right way, they'll also physically make you better. And that at the end of the day, four years down the line, after you've been an athlete that I've worked with throughout a high school career, you will be much more mentally tough 
better able to handle competition and the stress and manage it and focus it in the right way. And I think that that takes a lot of practice. And so that is the biggest aspect that I'm working on is figuring out how to get my kids there. Because I can give them the best workouts in the world. I can give them a great quote. But how do I get them there to um, be as prepared and as ready and as comfortable as they can to get in that flow state as an athlete? And that's one of the biggest things that we've been really working on and I've been specifically working on. And and who are the kind of people that you're 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 reading or speaking to 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 improve the work that you do in those regards? So I'm currently involved in the Positive Performance Psychology Masters program at Mizzou, which was founded by Dr. Rick McGuire, who's basically like the godfather of sports psychology. And so that's a really uh, great program, and I've been investing a lot of time in that. Uh, Brian Risk. Uh, who kind of developed this thing called the 24-hour taper is another guy that is just that 24-hour taper is just amazing you know and just how um, and if you you can look into this but basically it's giving your athletes like every hour something positive to do that will not only help their performance but also help their mindset so it's like getting all that stuff out of the way so there isn't decision fatigue the day before competition and they're neurally burnt out everything that you do 24 hours before the competition is established it's it's ready to go and it's to provide something fun not something where it's so rigid like i have to warm up at 45 minutes till the you know i get into the blocks well that that's not realistic yeah instead what's more realistic is like at one o'clock call a friend and tell them that you love them at two o'clock watch a skit of your favorite comedian three o'clock Read your favorite poem from Maya Angelou, you know, and things that they can do pretty much without any chance of interference and getting them in the right mindset in that regard has been has been really interesting. And Dr. Orr, who now is currently running the Mizzou program, has been a big influence in that and uh, just getting me to think about, you know, how we have these conversations and how we talk to our athletes and how we handle when things don't go well you know and and so those those guys have been really beneficial where can people pick up the book so the sprinters compendium you can pick up at vervante which is the company that's a print-on-demand company um they can also go on pretty much any of the amazon.coms no matter what country they're in and they can pick it up there um if they want the paper bound book depending on where you're at if you're like you are right now in japan it's going to be a little expensive but to, I had to get uh, Kindle. With, yeah, so so to deal with that, we, we, we did a Kindle version, and it's pretty good. It's pretty close to the, the printed version, and um, it's, you know, it's, it's a very large, comprehensive book. No book has ever been put together with the depth and breadth of knowledge um, of all those contributors and research over those, those years as a coach. So, yeah, pick it up at those places, Vervante or Amazon.com. And, you know, in your pursuit of knowledge, it will be a great resource to have on your coffee table or or in your, you know, coach's toolkit. Much appreciated, Ryan. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you.